Brought to you by the Hockey Podcast Network. Welcome back to Drop Pass Podcast. What's up, buddy? Long time no see, huh? Yeah, exactly. It's been a long month for me and you both, but now the Rumble train is back on its tracks and it's time to get back down to what we do best. And that certainly ain't painting or knitting, and we both know that for a fact. Hopefully you had a pleasant holiday season because that certainly was the case for me and I even got to take a quick trip to Germany during the break so I'm feeling refreshed and calm now that I've gotten up to speed with my new job and while there's still more to learn than what I would be willing to admit, the first obstacles have now been passed and the nerves have settled down a bit so I can confidently say that the break was indeed needed and I'm glad that you decided to stick beside me despite this sudden change of what you and me both have been accustomed to. So I'm absolutely thrilled to be back and not only because we got lots to talk about when it comes to NHL, World Juniors and whatnot, but also because I get to share my message with you guys again. So once more, thank you for your support and I truly wish that you enjoy the following 30 to 40 minutes of full-on hockey talk. Hey Steezy, your break is over as well, so quit slacking and start pushing the heat just like always. Okay. That's more like it. Without further ado, let's get going. It is truly time to put on the gloves again and start catching up on the NHL action that we've missed in recent weeks. Since we got months worth of headlines to unpack and although we surely won't touch upon every nuanced detail from December, we surely are going to go over the big headlines and that shouldn't be that surprising if you've been part of this ride for some time. And like I said before my winter break, some adjustments have now been made in order to make this new relationship work between this weekly gong show and my new full-time job. And to my delight, I get to tell you that more than likely, the only major change that is going to take place is that I'm trying to aim for the 30 to 40 minute mark max per episode. Because these episodes don't just appear out of thin air and take some preparations in order to reach the sound wave, so... We'll see if I can manage to cut down the episode length a bit without sacrificing too much on the content side of things. And when it comes to the content itself, I'll obviously try to experiment here and there like I've done in the past while also trying to acquire some new guests on the show as well. Which, by the way, isn't as easy as you guys would think, but for the most part, I want to keep the plot pretty similar since you, who stop by each week, already know what you're about to get, so... I don't want to disrupt that side too much if you know what I mean. Because after all, I feel like I've stated my purpose of being an informative show mixed with some more minor personal views in the grand scheme of things, plus obviously the very subtle hint of humor mixed in between the lines as well. But obviously if you have any input on any of the aspects of this show, please let me know because I want to stay as entertaining as possible for you guys while also staying true to myself. So don't ever hesitate to express your constructive criticism if it seems necessary one way or the other. So in a nutshell, no sudden or big changes coming. I feel like those won't be necessary at least as of now because if you respect the content and don't necessarily have any sudden urges to absolutely clobber me if you see me on the streets, you're going to appreciate the content and stick beside me even if some changes take place even further down the road. But that's my current point of view, so for the moment, only really noticeable change is going to be the episode length, but other than that, I aim to stick to my guns and make subtle changes if they seem beneficial for the show in the long run. But that's it when it comes to the off-topic stuff, and since you now know that we are running a bit tighter ship here from this point on, we better get to it when it comes to hockey stuff, because we got a month's worth of headlines to cover, so... Do you mind if we switch to second gear and get to our comfort zone, aka the NHL ice surface? No objections, so let's move on, shall we? 
And to make things just a tad bit more easier for me and you both, I'm going to take the timeline approach for this week's episode purely because I want to keep the house in order because I know in my heart of hearts that if I end up jumping back and forth from one topic to another, we are about to be here for more than one or two hours just based on the upcoming material alone. So I'm going to keep things rather organized and the only exceptions to this rule are going to be the waiver claims, season-ending injuries and trades, which will get their own individual sections. So should be pretty easy to follow, but you'll be the judge of that at the end of the day. And we are going to start the news coverage with some controversy since the first two names on the board are going to be the ones that created lots of speculation back when they hit the news wires. And the ones I'm talking about here are linked to veteran names Corey Perry and Milan Lucic. And like, at this point I feel like the whole Blackhawks organization should burn itself to ashes and start all over because for fuck's sakes they just can't avoid controversy. Ironically enough, the Hawks already have an ongoing investigation in court linked to the previous ownership, so this Perry situation doesn't change much and ends up being just a cherry on top of the gate dressed as a huge flamey dookie on Carl Davidson's desk, who decided to take over this rapidly sinking ship. So in that sense, I feel sorry for him, but not for the Hawks organization as a whole. They made horrible judgments in the past and hopefully are paying the price in the future for it, so this just adds in the irony and just as the last note, I wanna say what many others have already been saying. It was fucking horrific how the social media and some of the fans handled this with the whole Bedard's mom thing. It was absolutely outrageous and I'ma leave it as that cause it's in the past now, but just to let you know, Perry got his PP whacked by the NHLPA and he was helpfully assisted to the player's assistant program more specifically, one responsible for substance abuse, and now that he has served his 10-minute misconduct, he's eligible to be signed by every NHL team thanks to always loving GM Gary Bettman. So yeah, not a good look for the Hawks and for Perry whose stock was increasing rapidly thanks to his decent showings in the early season. Lucic on the other hand laid his hands on his wife after a night spent in downtown Boston and has ever since been suspended from the team activities and for a good reason I might add. I haven't read too much about the case because these incidents kind of disgust me to be completely honest but what I've read and heard it seems like a pretty clear case where Lucic is the one that has to take responsibility for his actions and given his on-ice performance in recent years I would honestly think about the possibility of hanging up the skates because he ain't the first, second, or even third option in their lineup sheet anymore. And for example, Boston's youngsters are passing him left and right right now on the roster sheet, so for his sake as well, I think it would be wise that he would just focus on getting his house in order, meaning the bucket between his shoulders, and then to start slowly wonder if he still has something to give for the National Hockey League. So those are my thoughts on these two incidents and quite honestly we are still waiting to hear what the thing was with Perry that snapped the camel's back but given Chicago's recent history of controversies I believe that this will be duck six feet under and that we will never hear from this again at least as far as he stays active in the NHL. And while speaking of Chicago I might as well throw in the big announcement that was made right after my previous episode which concluded that Patrick Kane was going to make his return to the NHL ice with another original six team. He ended up signing one year 2.75 deal with the Detroit Red Wings and so far he hasn't just talked the talk but also walked the walk since the 35-year-old currently has six tucks and eight apples in 17 games with the Wings who are still in the playoff mix but have started to slide in the standings after their fairly strong start to the new season. And the good thing for the Red Wings is the fact that if he ends up keeping up his scoring pace, he will become a valuable asset for the team near the deadline time, and the Motor City representatives could end up hauling back a decent return overall at the back end thanks to multiple UFAs that will hit the free agency, if not signed before July 1st. But there's still plenty of time to correct the course and the aim for the team before the season was to find the postseason this year thanks to another bunch of offseason transactions, so 
We'll see what happens with them, but at least Kane has been able to contribute and raise his stock after a woeful showing in last year's NHL playoffs. But where there's light, there's also darkness, as we've already witnessed, and for three former head coaches, the Christmas wasn't as joyful as they had probably thought beforehand. Minnesota ended up booting their long-term head coach Dean Evason from his seat and soon after made public that a former Preds head Hancho John Hines was going to take his place within the same breath. And according to the news outlets, the exchange between good friends Billy G and Dean Evason was short and somber, where Evason essentially knew that his time had come, but for the while the change has made a difference so far and a team that was surfing near the bottom of the standings has started to slowly fight its way back towards the top and closer to the actual postseason spots. And one of the bigger aspects that they still need to figure out is their goalie situation, which has handcuffed them pretty badly during this year's NHL campaign. They are still a handful of points away from a playoff spot, and if they could move around few contracts at the deadline, they should be one of the teams adding names to their roster, just like in last year's rush hours. But they didn't end up being the only team from the Central Division who ended up showing the door to their head coach since their rival St. Louis Blues also ended their Cinderella story with a former NHL vet Craig Berube after five and a half years as their head coach. Chief brought the Stanley Cup to St. Louis five years ago and was without a doubt one of the main reasons for the success alongside their strong core group and few star players, but like with most coaches, it seemed like his message was starting to go unnoticed inside the locker room and thus, their management group came to a decision that it was a perfect time to let him walk while the team is trying to find its path back towards success, most likely through a more thorough retooling process. The Blues have ever since been running without a standalone head coach and we've heard few rumors around the league about who the next bench boss could end up being, but to this date, they at least haven't decided on it, but I would imagine that if the team truly wants to stay in the postseason conversations, it would be wise to get someone to run the bench for them, whether it is one of their current assistants or someone outside their blue and yellow bubble. And as the old French saying goes, jamais deux sans trois, meaning never two without three. We saw DJ Smith's reign in the Canadian capital come to its end a couple weeks ago as the new big boss in Ottawa had decided that he had seen enough and ended up kicking out the former Mem Cup champ after four and a half years behind their bench. And just like in Missouri, the Saints are still rocking without their conductor, but in their situation I feel like there's not going to be any major rush to get someone back there, given that the team has been mouthbreaking throughout this year's campaign, so... My intuition tells me that Ann Lauer and his new right-hand man will take their time before appointing a new head coach because now that the leadership group is finally formed to its full extent, they are going to head to their war room to discuss about the heading of their beloved team. And if you're currently asking, well, who the new right-hand man is in Ottawa, well, it is their former interim GM, a.k.a. Steve Steyos, who now is the new heart of their organization as the general manager and the president of Hockey Ops of the Ottawa Senators. And kind of like I indicated, the Sens are in desperate need of a true posture change to put it lightly and at least on paper, and by looking at what their new owner has done within the past six to eight months, it makes me think that things are bound to change in the Canadian capital with the new duo in charge of the copless Canadian organization. Steyo spent 16 years in the NHL as a player and right after retiring began his managerial career first as a player development advisor for the Leafs before moving to OHL and more specifically Hamilton, where he spent the past seven years as the general manager of the Bulldogs. So it is easy to say that his resume backs this firing and with all the accolades that he has gathered from his professional career added to his fairly short managerial resume, I feel like Ann Lauer got his guy on the big chair and they together will start to make the sense relevant again, not only on the northern border, but also on the lake-wide level as well. The sense without questions have been the biggest disappointment to me from the ongoing season, and the same issues have followed them to this campaign from the earlier seasons. They just lack consistency completely from their defensive game, and pretty much their whole defensive structure is all over the place which even makes their netminders look like huge wormholes in their blue paint. So, 
pretty much the only way to salvage this is by at least getting rid of your upcoming UFAs. And if Gladiru is willing to waive his no movement class in order to fight for the Stanley Cup before retiring, he should be added on the plug as well because he's been their most consistent forward and is still near elite on both ends of the ice. So take what you can and pray that you don't have to give out too large discounts when the fire sale starts in the Ontario province. And as the final addition to their current gearbox, Anlauer decided to bring in some familiar color as the team legend Daniel Alfredson was appointed as the new assistant coach of the Ottawa Senators. The transition to his current role was fairly easy per report since Alfie was hired as the team's dev coach earlier this year and even before that he had worked as a senior advisor for the Sens back in 2015 to 2017 before moving to coach Ottawa's junior Sting U15 team so this was pretty much just a cherry on top of the previous hirings and I truly hope that Alfredsen can bring something extra to the young Sens squad offense that hasn't quite found its peak as of yet. So great hirings at least in my opinion as a sense chalk sniffer but only time will tell how many more changes we end up seeing especially on the roster front before the team truly starts to show its capabilities on the big stage. And while we're on the northern side of the US-Canada border I might as well bring up the next talking point which is Toronto's goaltending situation. And guys, if you haven't paid any attention to it lately let me get you on track what exactly has happened since the last time we talked. Joseph Wall was placed on the IR list early in December and veteran Martin Jones was brought in as Samsonov's backup. While things took a turn for the worse at least from Samsonov's point of view since the Russian netminder kept letting in soft goals and his save percentage ended up plummeting towards 0.860 save percentage mark. Jones was given the opportunity to show what he could offer for the Leafs and the Vetches took over the crease which led to Samsonov getting the Jack Campbell treatment which meant trip through the waivers right in the minesies but fortunately for him the Leafs ended up calling him back again very soon after but still Jones remains as their go-to guy and Samsonov could spend the rest of his season with the Marlies in the worst case when Wall comes back and Jones keeps his current form from the first 13 games of his season. So, as you can see, it's quite a unique situation in Toronto that we are currently witnessing where Samsonov has just completely lost his confidence and is very much reminding us of his time in Washington just a couple years earlier. In Jones's tremendous 0.928 save percentage mixed up with great 2.15 goals against average through 13 games is also something that at least I wasn't expecting to see. So my question right now is, would Trey Living be willing to lose some assets in order to alleviate some cap room for the Leafs for the deadline by trading Samsonov away before the clock starts running? Or will he take the safe route and just bury him in the minors while trying to maneuver through the deadline with their current cap space? Off-season additions Domi and Bertuzzi are both UFAs at the end of the season so their names are on the chopping block more than likely as well if he decides to try to bolster their defense for example but certainly the tasking hand ain't that easy and there truly is a need for him to try to impress the Leafs fans in his inaugural season because the team is in win-now mode and just signed one of their superstars to a long-term extension which we will cover in just a few short minutes. But what is stern, at least in my view, is the fact that Wall is there to stay thanks to his strong performances in last year's playoffs partner up with this 15 stars this year. So who ends up going and which names will arrive is an intriguing aspect to follow throughout the following 60 days of NHL season because this situation is less than waterproof so we'll see how their new GM will react to it before the Leafs head towards another postseason run. And while speaking of possible cup contenders, the New York Rangers were on fire while I was gone. And although their current run of play hasn't been quite up there compared to their hot streak, they still remain as one of the top teams in the East and now have slick new threats to show for it. Which if you haven't already checked out, please do so because they are fire. And I'ma leave it at that. What wasn't fired though was this year's winter classic between the NHL newcomer Seattle Kraken and Vegas Golden Knights, which became the least watched NHL outdoor game in the modern history. 
The viewership came down 38% from last year's Penguins-Boston battle, and overall I feel like the NHL fumbled the ball on this one. And we all know that this event was going to flop already when we saw the entrance and tires from the respect teams. Like, I get that the Kraken wanted to show appreciation for their home fans and the fishing culture, but when you come out looking like a drunken lumberjack who had forgotten his flannel shirt in the woods, it's a tough look, and what made it even worse was the goddamn fish choice that they carried all the way from their team bus to the locker room. And once again, no disrespect to any Seattle natives, I just feel like they could have executed this way better, and that's just my opinion. Vegas's Elvis impersonators at least brought some flair to the mix with their v-neck stretching all the way to their crotches, but other than that, the whole event kind of flatlined and we could sense that pretty much from the first few beats. But I'm really happy that these teams got their outdoor game so early on, but overall I just feel sorry for all you Kraken fans at the end of the day. And while speaking of NHL special events, I'm glad to announce that the NHL All-Star Weekend is finally going to experience a small overhaul and will feature a new format that is going to be round-based elimination instead of the old one-and-done event-based system. The one player per each team rule which I've complained about in previous years though is in full effect and all the names taking part in the All-Star competition have been announced now including the last 12 names that were voted in by the fans. The names include first-timers Frankie Vetrano, Jeremy Swayman, Elias Lindholm, Alexander Georgiev, Boone Jenner, Jake Ottinger, Sam Reinhardt, Oliver Bjorkstrand, Robert Thomas, William Nylander, Morgan Riley. J.T. Miller and Connor Bedard, who more than likely will end up missing the event due to his recent injury, which will take him out of the action for about six to eight weeks. Meanwhile, the remaining 24 names will be Clayton Keller, David Pasternak, Rasmus Dahlin, Sebastian Aho, Nathan McKinnon, Kale McCarr, Alex DeBringet, Connor McDavid, Leon Drysaddle, Sergei Bobrovsky, Cam Talbot, Karol Kaprizov, Nick Suzuki. Philip Forsberg, Jack Hughes, Matt Barzal, Igor Sheshcherkin, Freddy Gachuk, Travis Konechny, Sidney Crosby, Thomas Hurdle, Nikita Kucherov, Austin Matthews, Quinn Hughes, Thatcher Demko, Elias Pedersen, Jack Eichel, Tom Wilson, and finally, Connor Hellebuck. And more than likely, Bedard won't be the only name that could end up missing the All-Star weekend since, like in the past, players will fall off to injuries before we get the action going in Toronto. So hopefully guys have bought cancellation options to their hotel reservations because it could become reality for a few guys within the final few remaining weeks before the show starts. But as I mentioned, NHL is indeed overhauling its All-Star competition and the player draft will also return as part of the new NHL All-Star Thursday, which will eventually kick off the entire weekend. Celebrities will be paired with selected captains who will pick four teams consisting of nine skaters and two goalies, just like back in the day, and the last player getting picked will get some sort of a loser bonus, so same concept luckily returns to bring some flavor for the All-Star weekend. But that ain't the only change NHL will be making this year since all players selected for the event will compete in four of the first six events on the first on-ice day and will be earning points from each event which will eventually decide which names will continue to the final two stages of the competition. So there will be eight events as a whole and all names will be competing for a prize pot of one million US dollars. The first six competitions will be the usuals, fastest skater, hardest shot and accuracy shooting, spiced up by one-timer, passing and stick handling challenges. The top eight point getters will then advance to the seventh event, which will be the familiar shootout challenge, where two more names will be eliminated before the final event, the somewhat familiar obstacle course where point totals will be doubled compared to previous rounds. Eventually one of the names will come on top and take home the prize pot, so at least on paper this seems like a much more entertaining concept and brings back more of that competitive spirit that professional athletes are known for, so let's just hope that the players take on this challenge and actually care about showing off their skills on second day.
And as usual, the event will end in the four-way team tournament, which luckily will feature mixed teams instead of the conference-based ones, so it seems like the NHL has finally listened to its fans and is actually trying to bring more excitement to this event that has been senseless and tasteless for the past few years. So my closing statement is that I'm rather excited, not necessarily for the event itself, but how this concept will actually fly once the players hit the ice, and even how they could build upon this for the upcoming years, because this weekend is mainly targeted for the fans, so you gotta take their opinions into consideration, and I'm glad that that has finally happened, even though it took way too long to become a thing in the first place, but better late than never. The U20 World Championships also took place a few weeks ago, and surprise, surprise, the mighty Americans came on top with their absolutely stacked junior squad. But also while saying that, I also gotta give some respect for the host nation Sweden, who also put on a hell of a fight in the finals despite the big difference in the end result, and featured probably the best junior lineup that we've seen from them for a quite a long time. Czechia took home the bronze medal after the Finns absolutely blew their load in the second intermission and the team that earned the worst overall grade from the tournament was the almighty Canadians who got bounced in the quarterfinals against the Czechs, who took their second medal in back-to-back years. But like I said, the US was a complete powerhouse with their NCAA Finans and Although the all-knowing Finnish commentator Ika Lehkonen called this team the best US team in the modern history, I would still argue that the one we saw back in 14-15 is still the most stacked one we've seen in the 21st century, featuring names such as Matthews, Wierenski, Demko, Hannifin, Eichel, Larkin, Carlo, D'Angelo, Tuck, Comfer, and my boy Yamakashin, but you guys tell me if this team was as stacked as the one we saw back in the day, and if I should just submit my application to Ika School of Hockey. But don't get me wrong, this team was filled with future star players and first-liners, and quite frankly, there were only a handful of guys in other teams that could compete against them on an overall skill level, so I truly enjoyed to watch this team every time I got the chance to do so, and I have no doubt about the fact that we are going to look back at some point and think much the same way as I do currently in regards to the team they iced in 2014. The U.S. got solid goaltending from their starter Trey Augustine, who looks to compete for the starting job in Detroit against a former first-round selection, Sebastian Kosa. Meanwhile, from their back-end names, Buyum, Casey, and Hudson separated themselves from the rest, and especially as a Habs fan. I loved to see Hudson's domination with the puck and can't wait to see him take his first strides on the NHL ice. Seamus Casey as well shined on their back end with this elusive skating and brilliant puck handling ability. Meanwhile, draft-eligible Sib Buyum increased his stock in this tournament and more than likely secured himself a spot in the top eight in the next summer's NHL entry draft. On offense, Boston College's quadruplet of Gauthier, Leonard, Perrault and Smith was as lethal as anticipated and truly took over this tournament alongside their other first-round names, Brindley. Howard, McCrory, Snuggerud, and Nazar. Especially Gavin Brindley caught many people's eyes with his combo of skill and speed, so as many have anticipated, he could become one of the biggest deals of last summer's second round if his level of play ends up translating to the NHL ice as well, once he makes the jump from the college ranks. So all in all, dominating performance on all fronts, they had speed, size, depth and scoring prowess on their lineup, so in my opinion, not much else needs to be said, and we can just quickly start to go over the other teams that literally just took part in this year's junior tournament. So the Swedes unfortunately had to take the L on home ice, but much like with the Americans, many guys featured on their lineup are going to have lengthy and very successful NHL careers, so while this was a hard pill to swallow for many, Better things might be waiting in the future so they can be proud of what they achieved and start focusing on the next chapters on their professional careers. The former Duke Gordon combo of Canucks pick Jonathan Lekkerimäki and Buffalo's first-round selection Noah Eslund were the big names up top, 
who carried the scoring workload for the Swedes for the most part. And I was extremely happy to see such a great performance from Leckie, whose last year's showing left a bitter taste in many Canucks fans' mouths. So, with this kind of performance under his belt, I think many Knox fans are going to sleep their nights better while waiting for his arrival across the Atlantic Ocean. These two created a deadly one-two punch for the Swedes where Erslund acted as the slick, soft-handed passer setting up plays. Meanwhile, Lekkerimäki's responsibility was just to pull the trigger and to put the puck in the back of the net each time he got the meatball on his tape across the seam. And that worked. Lekkerimäki finished as the top goal scorer in the tournament with America's Isaac Howard. Meanwhile, Erslund's total showed three Genos and seven apples at the end of seven games, so you might start to understand why the Sabres might start to have some problems fitting all their talent in their lineup in the next two to three years, with all the names pushing for the same spots on their eight-team-man unit. St. Louis's Otto Stenberg had a strong showing on home ice as well and at least increased his stock in my own books with a nine-point performance. And pretty much same can also be said about the other Blues prospect Theo Lindstein, who finished the tournament with eight dots from seven games so Finally, it seems like the Blues are starting to get more push from their ranks than what they've received in the past few years. Their goalie Hugo Havelaid had a decent show in between their pipes and one has to wonder if his numbers were a true reflection of his individual play or a combination of their strong DM play and his puck-stopping ability. Meanwhile, Axel Sandin Pellica showcased his elite skating and shooting ability on the Swedish blue line as well and looks like the next right-handed smooth skating top four defenseman for the Swedes, and you can't even knock the performances of Sharks prospects Philip Bystead and Matthias Havelid, plus one of the best shutdown defensemen of this year's tournament, Tom Willander, too much either. Only letdowns for me were first-rounder David Edstrom's and especially Liam Ögren's performances on the offensive front, where I expected these two to put more points on the board than they were able to, but Unfortunately, you can always be on your A-game, and that seemed to be the case with these two. And even Elias Salamence's tournament left more to be desired, so I guess these small margins were the difference maker between the gold and silver medals. But all in all, fairly successful event for the Swedes, and while Leo Carlson would have been a huge addition for this bunch, I doubt that one man by himself would have decided the gold medal for the Swedes this time around, because you have to remember that the U.S., for example, were also missing their number one center, Logan Cooley, from their lineup. But you could see that the Swedes were truly going to go for it when the official roster for the World Championships was announced just before the tourney kicked off. Jehia, who took home the bronze medal, had a great tournament in the end, and the brightest star for them was hands down their captain, Jiri Kulic who's been having himself a field day in the AHL for two seasons now and brought that firepower to the U-20s as well. Meanwhile, Seattle's first-round selection, Edward Saleh, and Ottawa's mid-round pick, Thomas Amara, can give themselves strong pats on the back for their tournament performances as the supporting cast to their first-line center. With better defense and goaltending, the Czechs could have been an even bigger threat, but in the big picture, their junior development has continued to improve, and we've seen the results of that in the most recent U20 and U18 World Championship tournaments. Draft-eligible Thomas Galvas had a decent showing on their back end as well, and the one name that I was excited to see on the ice for the Czechs alongside previously mentioned names was young defenseman Adam Jiricek, who's battling against his countryman Galvas for the first-round spot in the upcoming draft class. But, unfortunately... He got injured in the first round robbing game and will miss significant time due to the injury he sustained in that play. So as you could guess, I didn't really get to see him that much. But all in all, a great tournament was capped off by a hard-fought battle that earned them the bronze medal when all was said and done. Their opponent Finland though got exactly what it deserved and the only names that earn somewhat clean papers from me are their captain Jere Lassila, Lenni Hämeenaho, Kasper Halttunen, Oiva Keskinen, Aleksandri Kaskimäki, Konsta Helenius and Kasper Kulonummi. And the main reason why I left out Jani Nyman is purely based on his production numbers from Liga this year. 
and if you're carrying the top score expectations with you to the tournament from the Finnish soil, two goals in five games just isn't good enough, especially after the fact that he had chances to put up almost double digits within the five games he played. So while his showing wasn't a total fiasco, you gotta realize that the bar wasn't exceeded, and that's my main reason why his name didn't appear on the list. And I know in my heart that Newman was expecting more out of himself as well. Hamenaho especially showed glimpses of his high-end skill and was one of the more visible fins on the ice when he had the puck on his tape. And same can also be said about their underager Consta Helenius, who was only able to rack home two dots from seven games. So in that sense, his barrel was filled with wet gunpowder, but when it comes to play drive, he was one of the best fins throughout this tournament. Emil Hemming's draft stock didn't experience any major changes to one way or the other. Whereas Dupes towering defenseman Jesse Polkinen, on the other hand, probably earned himself a draft selection in the upcoming NHL draft with his play on the Finnish back end. Their goaltender Niklas Kokko carried the team at certain points in the tournament and his numbers don't really reflect his overall performance from this year's U20 champs. In my mind, Seattle has itself a promising blue paint prospect that still needs some maturing before entering the NHL's bright lights, but so many goalies have come through the same development path that I wouldn't expect him to be the only exemption when all eggs have hatched. So overall, the team didn't come to this tournament with huge expectations and although we saw major improvements in their overall play from the first games, the end result pretty well describes the mojo around this year's team and that is unfortunate to tell you as a fellow fan. I'm going to dive a bit deeper into this whole Finnish junior development aspect in the future, and if I happen to forget to do so, I kindly ask you to remind me, because I have a lot on my mind when it comes to the subject of Finnish junior hockey and player development as a whole. So point this out to me if I completely forget to bring it up at some point in the future. But Team Canada, though, took the first flight home after getting beat by the Czechs in the quarterfinals despite being the big favorites when heading to the official elimination games. And the truth, unfortunately, is that it didn't come down to the lack of offensive firepower because just like the US, Canadians had high-end picks all over their lineup. So what caused this collapse after back-to-back gold medals from the U-20 World Championships? Well... I have my thoughts, and you let me know if you feel that you are on the same wavelength with me. First off, roster selection. Yes, some big names were missing from their lineup, and few guys fell out due to injuries at the finish line that could have been eligible for the tournament, but you ended up, for example, getting Boston's Matthew Poitra from the NHL, who kind of struggled to produce despite his great performances on the NHL ice soul. You really can't hide behind that fact, unfortunately. But what puzzles me even more is the fact that you decided to select defensive black hole Maverick Lamoureux as your first choice shutdown guy and picked Owen Allard instead of, for example, WHL top scorers Riley Heed and Andrew Crystal. Like, what the actual fuck? Oh yeah! And the other WHL point machine, Jagger Fergus, was also snapped right before the action took off, so one could say that they smell some favoritism towards the Q and the O. And let me remind you, the WHL has probably been the strongest CHL league through the past few years, at least when it comes to top-end draft names. And what sorted this soup even more was the fact how their head coach Alan Letang decided to utilize their players during the tournament. Leaving a guy like Braden Jaeger on your second power play unit with this lethal shot is almost a crime. And not giving enough ice time to your best play driver alongside Celebrini, Carson Refkoff, just strengthens my point. Matthew Savoie who had just one assist within four games, got the ice time, but was he deserving of that after dropping the ball so hard is a great question to ask. So I guess when you mix this soup, you start to realize why they got bounced into quarters, but it goes without saying that many guys on this lineup left a lot to be desired, so 
Next year, when the band moves to Ottawa, the Canadian Hockey Federation better take a look at this year's result and think how they want to approach the highly anticipated junior tournament hosted on their home soil. Projected first overall pick Macklin Celebrini run the show for the Canadians with eight points from five games, and their netminder Mathis Rousseau was a human highlight reel at times, but for the most part, this was a tournament to forget and for a good reason, because next year is another big one for them when it comes to the battle against the dear friend, the United States. The Slovaks did what they could in the tournament with the firepower they had, but I gotta say that I would have loved to see the end result of this team being led by the young stars, Juraslavkovsky and Simon Nemec. That unfortunately didn't happen, and guys like Servas Petrovsky, Captain Philip Mazar, Maxim Sturbak, Human Bloodhound Adam Sikora, and Dalibor Dvorsky had to take it upon themselves to carry this team, and so they did so. All in all, I can say that I'm impressed by the way they've elevated their junior development in recent years. Chicago's second-round selection, Adam Jayan, had another solid showing on the international ice, so if his game keeps developing like it has for the past few years, he could be another great candidate to take over the Hawks' crease in the future alongside his American counterpart, Drew Comesso, who currently has the stranglehold on their blue paint as we speak. But overall, if I'm completely honest, I gotta say that I didn't pay as much attention to the tournament as in past years, one of the main reasons being that the Finns didn't bring up too many emotions in me partially because of the lack of high-end NHL upside, and secondly, because you could sense that the final two teams battling for the gold were eventually going to be the US and the host nation Sweden just based on the rosters they announced few days before the action actually began in Gothenburg. The entertainment was there, and we saw exciting action throughout the two weeks, but to me, this just wasn't it due to the reasons I listed before, so I truly hope that next year is going to be another show on the smaller ice surface, and we get to see the top young stars going at it once again when we get closer to the year 2025. But those are pretty much my thoughts in regards to this year's Junior World Championships. And next, we will move on to the final few topics that we will be discussing in today's episode. And the last few topics of today's episode will cover the movement around the NHL within the last month, which eventually will lead us to our final headline that is linked to the drama surrounding the Philadelphia Flyers and their 2022 first-round selection, Cotter Gauthier. But first, let's get you on pace with the waiver claims that have happened in recent weeks before we move on to trade talk. First, the New York Islanders strengthened their blue line by adding left-handed defenseman Mike Riley to their back line, who was left out to dry in Florida, but after a strong start in his new home address, his numbers have started to decline, and I wouldn't be that surprised to see his name appearing on the waiver list again, despite his strong puck-moving ability and decent 200-foot game. A few days after that, another defenseman was once again on the move as the Chicago Blackhawks claimed the big left-handed blue liner Jacob Megna off the waivers, who was previously brought to Seattle at last year's deadline as a depth addition. And like I mentioned earlier on in this episode, usually when you see two, you ought to see a third one. And this happened to be the case regarding defensemen on the waiver list as well, because the LA Kings decided to put one of their own on the open market as their former first-round pick, Tobias Burnford, who has failed to make a lasting impression on their NHL lineup, found himself stranded and was quickly snatched by Vegas after entering the global radar. And last but not least, Chicago decided to add even more depth on their roster as they grabbed home a rugged bottom six forward Jack Sanford from Arizona after becoming available on the waiver market. And as we make our way to the trade front, you notice that we've seen quite a lot of movement already and even more should be expected as we head towards the final half of the current NHL season. The Canucks kick things off with two trades. With the first one, they open up cap space by shipping forward Anthony Beauvillier to Chicago in exchange for their 2024 conditional fifth round pick. And only two days later, they used that cap space to bring in towering defenseman Nikita Desidoro from Calgary for the fifth rounder they got from Chicago, plus their own 2026 third round pick. 
We knew that Sadorov had asked to be traded, and I even mentioned that before I headed for my month-long hiatus, so all in all, it didn't come as a surprise when it was announced that the Russian strategic bomber had packed his bags and was on his way to the airport. These types of defensemen are a rare species in the modern NHL and will without a doubt be a valuable asset for the Canucks when looking towards the upcoming playoff run. And like I've mentioned multiple times in this podcast already, Sedaro might not end up being the only flame heading out of town this year. And if I wanted to start some speculation, I would tell you that Jacob Markstrom could be the next guy on the crosshairs, but you didn't hear that from me, you understand. Then a week later, Sabres decided to address their bottom six by adding speedy two-way forward Eric Robinson to their fourth line, and a couple days later, Islanders, who had suffered few injuries to their back line, decided to bring in veteran Robert Berchuzzo in exchange for a 2024 seventh-round pick. Then about a week before Christmas, the Avs surprised us by trading away their offseason acquisition Thomas Tatar, who found his new home in Seattle where he has found his offensive game again and for a fifth-round pick, he could become valuable asset for the Kraken whether they end up making the playoffs or decide to move on from him before the deadline clock starts running. And last but certainly not least, we have the most recent trade that created some waves around the NHL circles, and the one I'm referring to concerns Philadelphia's 2022 first-round pick, Cade Gauthier, who was traded to Anaheim for Trevor Segres' side piece, Jamie Drysdale, and Anaheim's 2025 second-round selection. And what caused ruckus here was the fact that Gauthier had told their front office that he was not going to sign with the Flyers, despite him earlier saying that he was built to be a Flyer, so... Yeah, it's funny how things can change so drastically. But the fact is that, as a GM, when you hear that one of your prospects won't be interested in being signed to your NHL team, you have to start looking for trade options because just like President Keith Jones told, if you don't want to be here, you won't be here for long. So now that we've heard the details of the entire event, it's easy to say that the Flyers did what they could and got a pretty decent haul from Gaultier, all things considered. Anaheim adds another future top six name on the ranks, so just like in Buffalo, they soon have to start considering which names will make it once things get going. So. Good deal for the Ducks who were uncertain about Drysdale's future upside given his two major injuries within just three years in the big league. And you know what? You just gotta love Torch, man. Honestly. He's the man and I love the fact that he confronted the reporter who started to spread completely utopistic rumors just for clicks. So, once again... You gotta check your sources because there's just too many of these horny clickbait writers who just keep making shit up as they go, just in order to benefit themselves at the expense of others. So in conclusion, without going into details, I understand both sides of this deal and I respect Briere's and Jones's decision to ship the guy out after hearing his thoughts about not wanting to be part of the organization going forward. But I also get Gauthier's point of view where young players openly tell what's on their mind and kind of mold their own path that way just like in the NBA and NFL. So while it's not necessarily good for your brand, you at least are being honest and that's something that has become uncommon characteristic in the modern world. And those who have been sending Gauthier death threats and hate messages on social media, I'd like you to take a deep breath and think about what's something in your life that you are thankful for, because if you get so butthurt about a player that has never even taken a stride on the NHL ice, that you start sending them death threats purely for coming out and openly telling that he doesn't want to play for a franchise, you gotta check your medication and just start taping your mouth shut while sleeping, because that's just a brutal look, dude if you gotta start acting like a toddler who won't get his 20-second TD time after waking up. But someone could tell me that I don't even know what it's like to be a true fan, and to that, my answer is, maybe, maybe not, but at least I understand that there's always two sides to the coin and don't want to cause any harm for individuals involved with my own words or actions, which at the end of the day won't change my life's heading any way, shape, or form. 
So that's pretty much the sum up of the trade market as well as the drama involving the recent World Junior Championships. Lastly, we got the big one, aka William Nylander's 8x11.5 extension. And let me just comment this by saying their core four will take up 46.65 million until 2025. Just think about that. If they manage to hold on to three of their young guns, Johnny T will be the first to go as soon as he's willing to waive his no movement clause or his current deal runs out after a 24-25 season. But until then, they have to work with pennies because next summer players are going to ask for more money given that they chose to take the one-year deal route. And given that anyone they want to approach next summer already knows that they are broke, they have the most pressure, and on top of all else, won't be fighting for the Stanley Cup. So, in my eyes, that ain't a brilliant marketing slogan, but we'll see how many rabbits Trey Living is able to pull from his hat just in order to make this team competitive outside of their top six. And oh yeah, great deal for Willie. He joins the big 11 milli club, but for the Leafs, this looks rough as of now, but in few years things could change, and now these guys are locked up long term, so at least there's that before they start asking to be traded somewhere else, where Stanley Cup is a probable end result. So only time will tell how well this deal ends up evolving, and until then, we just gotta stay patient and enjoy the circus that surrounds the richest hockey club in the NHL. But that's about it when it comes to the main headlines from the past month. If I missed one or you want me to dive deeper into the core four thing, please let me know and I'll try to bring it up in the next upcoming episodes. Like I said, I wanted to keep the episode compact and this is something you can expect to see in the future as well. And I promise you that the content won't suffer because of it and we may just have to use more time in order to touch upon all aspects that I wanted to cover. Overall, it feels great to be back and I hope you enjoyed the compact episode. I appreciate you taking the time and hope to see you again next time as we continue where we left off in November. Thank you so much for joining me. Have an awesome week, you beauty. Stay tuned. Stay safe. Until next time. All right.